Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Ah, wonderful to see you. Yeah, we'll collect a building offering at the end of this service. And, uh, you know, I don't think anyone appreciates this campus more than I do. Because uh, you probably, not, not only am I at more services than you are, um, <laughs> but uh, I have probably set up more chairs and bartered with uh, school officials about renting facilities, both in, in, in this part of the world and on the East Coast, planting churches. And um, there was a time in my life where I just said, who needs a stinking building? What a waste of money. Let's just go rent this, 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 until you realize, you know, what it is to actually set up, tear down, set up, tear down, set up, tear down, and then get kicked out, and you're looking around, and, and, and the community doesn't think you're a legitimate church. You know, there's a certain amount of people that don't think you're a legitimate church until finally you're there. And, and the, the impact that you have had on this community is just uh, immeasurable. I was down at an event in Point Loma Friday night, and uh, Jan and I are walking into the event. I'll tell you about the event later. And, uh, and this couple joins us about our age, and who are you, who are you? And, and, um, and he's, he's, what do you do? And that's always the question I hope no one will ask me, uh, because people often change you know, when they find out I'm a pastor, I don't get the real person. And, um, and he says, wait, North Coast Calvary? And did you say you're the, pa- the pastor? And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> and he said to me, he says, your church precedes you in its reputation. He says, eh, yeah. Uh, you know, it was like someone bragging about my grandkids or something. He says, everywhere I go, your church, the impact on the community, and the fact that you stay strong in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I said, well, thank you, you know. Um, I'm going to have a good time tonight. <laughs> so we're still growing. We'll grow beyond you, grow beyond me, and, uh, and we want to be faithful to that. Uh, the, the, the church of three or four hundred years ago, uh, when they would build a church, it took two to three generations to build it. And they realized that uh, we're laying one brick at a time, just doing our part. And so as we take this offering, just do your part. Um, buy a toilet. <laughs> buy a brick. Uh, so that as we move along, you can say, you know... Uh, it's not their church. This is my church. So, Father, we pray that you be with us now as we study your word. We thank you for your holy word that it changes lives. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, we have some guests here this morning from Kenya. Uh, I just noticed Solomon and Alice. Please stand. <laughs> We're so glad you're here. You know, uh, Solomon has been coming to this church longer than I have. Uh, he was, he was a, one of the earliest missionaries that we supported from this church. And I remember uh, when I first came to this church that 
Solomon uh, got up and spoke, and I thought, wow, who is this guy? And I've enjoyed knowing you for all these years and the impact that you've had in Nairobi and beyond. Well, we are in 1 John chapter 2, and I want to thank my teammates, Ryan and Nick, for the fabulous job they did over the last two weeks. And uh, we'll proceed this morning uh, with the idea of not just gritty love, which we all believe in. I love that term that Nick came up with, this down-to-earth love. But we're going to focus specifically on gritty faith, down-to-earth faith. What does it mean to have the staying power in what we believe and in what is truth when it comes to the gospel. So the infant church that John is writing to, and I say infant because it really was the beginning of the church. The church of Jesus Christ now is about 45 years old uh, as it's begun to spread and John finds himself in Ephesus. He, uh, as tradition has it, not only moved to Ephesus eventually, but he uh, actually took Mary, the mother of Jesus, as Jesus from the cross asked John to take care of her. Um, He did, and, and she went with him to Ephesus. And as you read the book of Revelation, you'll see John writing to the seven churches that surround Ephesus. We took a trip there not too long ago to western Turkey to see all of the different churches that were there. and So John is writing to that part of the world, and as the letters in that day before the New Testament uh, were shared, uh, then they were copied and they spread throughout the rest of the world uh, because everyone wanted to see what John has to say. And what I find fascinating about 1 John is John is writing to a culture that is similar to ours more similar than you could ever imagine. Not only in its pluralism, as we have today, but also in its attempt to figure out what truth is. We live in a day where people, I would say, are hiding from truth. They have their heads in the sand. They they really don't, we say we want truth, but I'm not sure we really do. And we actually believe that you can tailor truth to fit whatever size you want. We have become just one thing on the shelf of many, many, many truths that are out there. And we hear people say, well, your truth may not necessarily be my truth. I'll respect your truth and you respect my truth. and, and what it is, it's, it's a defense to actually grapple with the idea, is there truly objective truth or is it only subjective? Are your feelings, are you, your story truly the thing that you're going to bank your whole life on? Now, surely we have subjectivity, we have feelings, we have individual stories, but is that the final word? And then we have two other things that we face in culture. One is modernity. Modernity started with the Enlightenment, took us all the way through the 20th century, where science and reason were king. 
And when science comes along, which I'm a, I'm a big fan of science, and I actually believe that science has to, within science, has to operate within naturalism. That is, you cannot just say, well, God did it. God did it, God did it. And then you would not keep researching to find out how things happen. But nevertheless, when science becomes, naturalism becomes a philosophy and says there is no other thing out there than what we can measure in test tubes, that has become a religion, not a science. So this impacted the church, particularly in the 19th century, where the church thought, wow, we believe in this immaterial God, we believe in heaven, we believe in all these things that you can't measure, we believe that Jesus is, is, is divine, that the incarnation, what do we do? And cults began to form. Won't name all the cults, but you know them all, that formed in the 19th century that hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people began to follow these beliefs that changed the nature of Jesus or changed what he actually did for you and me. And the whole attempt was to become legitimate to science and reason. Then comes post-modernity where we live today, which is the brackish water of both science still is here, but now with post-modernity, post-modernity is what I already described, where everybody's truth is true, and it's all contextualized to your experience. Uh, so consequently, if somebody stands up and says, no, there is a truth that is true for all of us. They're belittled. And people challenge Christianity on that basis and now have either turned to their own personal spirituality or to Eastern spirituality. And Eastern spirituality and personal spirituality has once again challenged who Jesus truly is according to Scripture and what he truly did for you and I. Now that's a long introduction just to show you the need of why John wrote this. This is not pie in the sky, this is germane to who we are today and it's vital for you and I to know what John says here so that we can carry on believing what we believe. You there? Everybody take a big sigh. Wow, glad Mark got that off his chest. So John begins by saying, be vigilant. The times we live in require you and I to not sit back, but to be vigilant. He says in verse 18, dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. Those of you that got my email, and you can get an email from me anytime, just sign up for it with somebody somewhere. And... Um, I, I told you, this sermon is incredible. It has the Antichrist in it. It has the end times in it. It has the Holy Spirit in it and uh, a few other things just to stir it up. So bear with me. We're going to go really, really fast. But he mentions the Antichrist here. And he says, even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us 
but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would, not, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So he says, dear children, I love the language little children. It sounds like Jesus is talking. Remember, John is the one that was closest to Jesus. Uh, John was probably the youngest of all the apostles. Consequently, he's still alive writing this letter somewhere around 85 to 95 A.D., And he's penning this letter, and as this great grandfather of the faith, he writes to you and I and calls us little children. It's such an endearing term, but he's also pointing to the fact that you and I as children are now spiritually developing, and we're facing some things, or we will face some things in the future about uh, truth. Going back to some verses that Ryan didn't cover um, because he had to decide how much he could uh, cover in his sermon, back in verse 12, we read this very poignant, almost poetic uh, set of verses where John says, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Isn't that what it's all about? We come to faith. You're forgiven. Amnesty. No more condemnation. Your sin is wiped out clean. That's all a child needs to know. Take a deep breath on that one. Yeah, forgiven. Then he says, I'm writing to you fathers because you have known him from the beginning. From the beginning is a key term for John, meaning the things you learned in the beginning haven't changed. There is a propensity among believers to, to, to follow the, the new and the, and the exciting and the different kind of teachings that you'll come across, whether in literature or in person or on TV or now on the web. But It's important for the fathers of the faith to know that what you learned in the beginning hasn't changed. Then he writes to young men. Sorry, ladies, include yourself in this. This is generic. Because you have overcome the evil one. There is a point where every one of us has to put long pants on. Uh, You know, I know you like waffles with chocolate and peanut butter every morning for breakfast. But there's a point where you have to decide, you know, maybe I need to eat something healthier. I don't know what that would be. That sounds amazing. You have to grow up. You have to decide. One of the things we have to grow up about is there is an enemy to your soul. And he wants to take you down or he wants to isolate you so that you have no impact on this world. You have no impact on the people around you. And I'm sorry to say that that's true. But a young man learns that I've got to overcome the temptations and the doubts and the fears and all of the things that come to me uh, through the enemy in this world. Then he repeats, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father, 
I write to you fathers because you have known him from the beginning. And I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. It almost looks like he, he's not only such a grandfather that he's senile and he, he's forgotten he just wrote this and he writes it again. And I don't think that that's true. This is the inspired word of God, but he's setting us up again to tell us the point he's trying to get to in the rest of what he's gonna share this morning is about the young men, that we have to learn to be overcomers. And he calls us overcomers. He says, you have overcome because you're strong. And listen, the word of God lives in you. That's why you're strong. It's not because you're wonderful, you're amazing, and in all of this uh, secular humanism that we would put the weight on ourselves. The weight is on the Word of God, and it's because you believe in the Word of God, and that's where we're going to go the rest of the morning, because that's where John tells us. So he's essentially saying the children must grow up to be strong and be overcomers of the evil one. Years ago, I shared this story, and some of you will remember it, about the candy man. Um, my mom uh, was wanting us, at a very early age, to warn us about predators. And, you know, this is back in the 50s when there was no problems in the world, right? Uh, but you, so you can imagine all the more now. And maybe we as parents would say, don't want to bother the kids, don't want to harm their psyche uh, with understanding that there are some people we need to be worried about in this world. But at the same time, as a parent, you want to warn them uh, that, that there's certain things as they grow up that, that they don't do, right? And so my mom called it the candy man. And I, I think we got this lecture once a year, you know, that someday the candy man's going to show up and he's going to drive up in a big old car and he's going to invite you to come over to the car and say, hey, kids, I got some candy for you. And it, do not take candy from strangers. Do not talk to strangers in that format. Be very, very careful. And so uh, we just thought that this, this was just, you know, mom talking. Until one day, we were crossing the parking lot in Santa Ana, where the old Ward's, Montgomery Ward's shopping center was on the corner of 17th and Bristol. And, and we're, you know, there, you just wandered in those days. You didn't even have to tell your parents where you're going or what you're doing. You just, it, it, it all felt safe. And this car, my brother is two years older than me, my sister two years younger. So I think we were like nine, seven, and five. We're just walking across the parking lot. And this guy in a big old maroon Oldsmobile that looked like a boat, you know, pulls up next to us, we're about 30 feet away on the passenger side of the car, and he rolls down the window. Now there's an expression. <laughs> the sign of a younger millennial and Gen Z is they don't know where that expression came from. They have never seen a window rolled down. <laughs> Think about that. So he hollers through the window, hey, kids, you want some candy? 
We froze. It's true. It's the candy man. We absolutely froze. And, and we looked at each other. And, and we didn't say a word. He says, come over here. I've got some candy. And we just froze and shook our head like this. And he says, come on. I'm a nice guy. Come over. I have some candy for you. We just stayed frozen, petrified. And finally, he starts getting nervous and looking around. He throws the candy over the top of the car at us. And maybe he was a legitimate grandfather. Who knows? But like creepy. And... Um, <laughs> And the candy hits our feet, and he drives off. And we look at each other, and my brother and sister say, don't touch it. <laughs> and I say, hey, it's candy. <laughs> so I pick up the candy, and I, I'm eating it on the way home. I figure I got away with it, you know? until they told my mother that I ate the candy from the candy man. And in those days, there were consequences, you know. <laughs> uh, I got my mouth washed out with soap, you know, which sounds so abusive today. But what I liked about that kind of thing is I didn't have to figure out what my mom was thinking two or four hours later. It just happened, it was done, and, and we moved on. So, but I had a little ivory soap still stuck in my teeth. Was my mom right in warning us about the candy man? She was right. And yet we hear these sermons today and say, what's the point? I don't know what Mark is talking about. I've always believed. Let me tell you, there are people in this room who will not be with us five years from now. Not because of the, the uh, candy man, but because what John calls the spirit of the Antichrist who is against your soul. And he's going to come against you in all kinds of ways that we need to learn in advance because if we don't decide in advance that we will never, ever take candy from the candy man, you won't know what to do when the candy man shows up. We have to decide in advance what John is telling us here. And he tells us that the other important part of this is that this is the last hour. This is the culmination of time. Now, the reason John drops that phrase into our lap right here is to let us know this is sober. This is serious. It's almost midnight. And it's the terminology that Jesus used. When they, Mary asked him to do a miracle, he said, my hour hasn't come, meaning the start of my ministry. Then he began to use this word. The Greek word is aura, which is where we get our word, hour, um, to refer to when he died on the cross. My hour has come. It was the culmination of Jesus' ministry. John now takes the term to talk about when Jesus is coming a second time, the last hour. This word matches other terms, like the term you have heard more, the last days. 
that come all the way back from the prophets and is used in other parts of the New Testament. Acts, Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost tells us that when the Spirit comes on the church, which it did, that this is what Joel prophesied, that in the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. So the last days began with the birth of the church. So if the last days started 2,000 years ago, where do you think we are today? We are in the last days of the last days. Whether I see Jesus come in my lifetime or beyond, we have to be in the last days of the last days. And John is arguing that as the last days come on us, there's going to be increased immorality and increased doctrinal decadence in the church. So we have to be vigilant. I remember reading the history of World War II after I became a Christian. I'd read it before, but then now as a Christian in college, I'm reading about it again, and I'm thinking, how did the church not believe that that was the tribulation? I mean, you have this great war, which seems to be like this worldwide Armageddon happening. You have this man named Hitler who is behaving like the beast in the book of Revelation, killing Jews and, and rounding up Jews. And, and, and all of this going on, I would have thought, this is it. But many times as you go back through church history, uh, you find out that things almost came to an end and then it stopped. It's almost like with basketball where someone shoots and it hits the rim and begins to spin around the rim rather than just dropping through the net and the players are jumping up and thinking, I don't want a goaltend, but I do want to tip it in if I can and, and then the ball spins out again. And that's what happened. And it's happened over and over again. But to be sure, it will finally go through the net. And that's how we have to think. That's how every healthy generation has thought that I need to be vigilant because these are difficult times. These are the last days. This is the last hour, as John says here. And then he says, as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming, and even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Here's a trivial pursuit question. Where is the term Antichrist used? Where are all the places that the term Antichrist is used in Scripture? You're right. Only in 1 John and 2 John. Only in John's letters is the term ever used. Did you know? Now you know. You'll win. <laughs> so now you're thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. What, about, what about Daniel? The concept is there in the book of Daniel. What about Jesus? Didn't he? Jesus refers to false Christs 
pseudo-Christ. Well, what about Paul? Doesn't he yet? He says man of lawlessness. Well, what about Revelation? The beast. John is the only one that uses the term antichrist. So what does antichrist mean? It means two things. One is in place of Christ, that is to take the role of Christ, and the second is to be against him. And I think John is is not nailing that one down. Uh, He's just letting us know that these teachers that have gone out from his church teaching false doctrine, even though they think they're innocent, what they're doing is actually anti-Christ, leading up to the single figure who one day will appear, who is the, capital A, anti-Christ. Got it? The best way to help you think about this would, would be to f- refer to the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so ultimately, the little hobbits are going to face Sauron, you know, the big eye in the tower that, that emanates evil, and they're going to have to face this ultimate Lord of the Rings. So what do we do? Well... Sauron begins to send out emissaries like small a antichrists, uh, like the dark riders, like the wraiths that come out, like Sauron, like the orcs, in all kinds of different ways. Those, those are pictures of, of evil, even though we think it's innocent. So even though we, we love everybody and we have conversations with everybody, we don't believe everybody. As people in our day say, well, don't you just believe, or I just believe, and no, there is truth, and John is going to lay that out clearly. So he comes now, and he says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, and by the way, the Greek actually says, if, if they had been of us, uh, they would have remained, and that's a key term that we'll get to should we have time later on, but they're, they're going out, they're going showed that, they, that none of them belonged to us, and again, the literal is they were not of us. So John points out two things that I think are important for your and my health. One is what uh, finally came to be called the perseverance of the saints. It is paramount that you and I persevere with the truth. It is not enough for you to just say, hey, I checked the box. Hey, I prayed the prayer, whatever. And now I just go on and believe whatever I believe. If you have met the Jesus I have met, you will persevere to the end. Folks, I'm old enough to have friends, dear friends of mine, who have walked away from Jesus. They have walked away from the living Jesus and said, either that doesn't work for me anymore. Just three weeks ago, one of my dearest friends, very public Christian, said to me in private, Mark, I just don't believe it anymore. 
I just don't believe it anymore. And I said, okay, but because I'm your friend, this is not the end of the dialogue. We're going to keep talking. I'm not going away. But I've had people leave, and they have the idea, well, I checked the box if it's true. I prayed the prayer if it's true. But now, whatever, I'm just going to do whatever I want, either morally or doctrinally. And Jesus is the one who actually says that those who persevere to the end will be saved. Mark 13, 13. The other thing that's here is the value in the nature of the church. Folks, we got to belong. We got to stick together. If they had been of us, they would not have gone out from us. The value of the church today is at an all time low. Not only in church attendance, but just the value of belonging and fellowship. Not only is it just 31 flavors of, well, where you go now and what do you do now? With, and, and I get that. I, I don't have any power to change the 31 flavors in America that are your option and my option in terms of church attendance. But wherever you go, you better belong. Being a single water drop does not make you a river. It makes you a water drop that is absorbed into the soil. That's... You know, we are in danger when we isolate ourselves. And John says, if they had been of us, if they had met the Jesus that we have met, they wouldn't have left. And so it's a great warning for you and I about this candy man and about the things that are coming uh, to be on our guard. Now, now the question, John turns to say, well, now what do we do? <laughs> you know, what are we going to do? And he answers in two ways. One is, they're both surprising, by the way. One is the Holy Spirit. And the second is the idea of abiding. So firstly, he says, one of the answers to protect us is the Holy Spirit. He's the truth giver. Look at verse 20. Are you still there? I believe you are. I can feel it. But you have, anoint, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth. Great teacher, so affirming. But because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. The anointing. What is the anointing? When you hear the word anointing, you either picture... Uh, uh, a christening of a baby in, in, in a more liturgical church, you know, where some water is put on the child, or you picture maybe the Old Testament with Samuel anointing David with oil. I think he purposely uses the word anointing because when you are anointed with oil, it sticks to you. You know, I, you probably have been prayed for healing before where someone anoints you with oil and they put a dab on your forehead or uh, if they're Orville Stanton, they make it in the sign of the cross. That has more power. <laughs> um, I had a friend once that said, Mark, I'm going to anoint you with oil. And I shut my eyes to pray and he says, you know, and if a drop is good, then more is better. And he pours the oil on my head. 
That's what you're to picture. And the oil sticks to you. It's like, oh, great. What's, what's going to get rid of this? Well, you, you know, the idea is if you're anointed to be king or to be priest or prophet, you don't want to get rid. You want the anointing to be upon you. It's a symbol of the staying power of the Holy Spirit on your life. So in one word, he gathers up the whole idea of the staying power of the Holy Spirit upon your life. And it's a secret weapon that you and I have the Holy Spirit inside of us that helps protect us from false teaching. Listen, the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, John 16, 13, is the truth giver and the truth guide. I think we do a disservice to the Holy Spirit when we make the Holy Spirit only the gift giver or only the empowerer. Because then we all flock to, wow, wow, what what gift do you have? And we make the Holy Spirit to be like the crazy uncle that gives out all these great gifts. And, you know, this is, Jesus saw the Holy Spirit coming as paramount, the truth giver and keeper. That makes him from being the crazy uncle to the old salt that knows the truth. He knows where the harbor is. He knows how the winds are. And and even though he sees all the other little sailboats zigging and zagging, chasing, trying to get the, the power of the wind, this old salt just keeps his boat heading for the harbor. And he's looking up occasionally at the telltales that are on your sails to make sure. And he's just not worried about all the people chasing the wind because He knows what truth is. And that who is living inside of you. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That is amazing. Have you ever sensed the uh, 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 uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh, whether doctrinally or morally, inside of you? I don't know how else to describe it. You know, either, you know, you're just saying, well, that's just my overactive conscience. Couldn't it be the Holy Spirit? We have a phrase in pop Christianity that actually isn't in the Bible, but it's a good one. I just had a check in my spirit. Have you ever heard or used that phrase? I have a check in my spirit. It's you're, you're actually should be saying, I felt a check from the Holy Spirit, the anointing that And usually, I don't know what's wrong about it yet, but there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. Growing up in Santa Ana, um, we often would take sandwiches down to the beach at Newport. And uh, one of the things I became very OCD about was getting sand in my sandwich. (laughs) Just, there's nothing worse. And I was very clear to wash my hands and not let anything touch before I unwrap the sandwich. And inevitably, there would be that one moment where I I crunch. It's not peanut butter. It's not jelly. It's not bread. It's sand got in my sandwich. And that's the way false doctrine is. 
You don't know where it is. You, you're not, you haven't figured it out yet, but something is wrong. And so you have this inward guide guiding you. It's this still small voice that Elijah experienced. Now, the nature of the heresy, verse 22 and 23, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. There it is. That Jesus is the Christ. Circle that. We'll come back to that. Such a person is the Antichrist, small a. One of the orcs that has gone out. Denying the Father and the Son. So to deny that Jesus is the Christ actually ends up denying the Father. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father. It's the Father who had the idea. It's the Father who sent his Son. It's his, the Father who allowed his Son to be crucified for you, and it's the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. So to deny what Jesus did is to deny the Father. You don't get God without Jesus. Now, there are people that are hungry and searching for truth, and they would be offended by that statement and I would affirm them, if you are authentically seeking the truth, you will find it. If you're not putting your head in the sand, God's Holy Spirit is going to lead and guide you, and I want to be your friend on this journey. And I won't push you harder than you need to be pushed. I'm going to let the fruit ripen at its time, and I'm going to be your friend, honoring it. But to make up in your mind who God is and Jesus is, and call that truth, you've actually bought into something that is anti-God because what Jesus did and who he is is paramount to our relationship with God. Let me go forward two chapters to 1 John 4.2. This is going to help us unpack what he's saying here. This is how we can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the earth. And 2 John 7 uh, talks about the same thing. Now, for some of you, this may seem like uh, superfluous. Well, I don't have, a, of course he came. I, you know, what is he even talking about? It, I wouldn't talk about it if, if there weren't thousands of people who now have a different definition of the net nature of Jesus or a different definition of what he did for you and me. They are everywhere. The whole last generation that went through the Elaine Pagel thing and the whole... Uh, Da Vinci Code and the whole uh, Gnostic Gospels, this is where it began. There was a heretic that began that overlapped in John's lifetime. Did you know? We know this because one of John's disciples that's written about by Irenaeus uh, was Polycarp, who knew about this heretic, and his name was Serenthus. And Serenthus was a part of this church, he began to teach, whether this is who John is referring to or others, 
We can't know for sure, but we do know about Serinthus. Because of his background, he began to teach that Jesus was just a man. And at his baptism, the spirit of Christ came on him and he lived as the Christ for three years, but because spiritual is, is good, physical is bad, you can't have uh, good experiencing the physical, and so the spirit of Christ left him before his crucifixion. So once again, he was just a man dying in the spirit had left him. And because that was popular in the day of just very much like postmodernism today, uh, everyone began, a lot of people began to follow him. And so John here is saying, no, 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 no. He physically was the son of God. At the incarnation, God literally became man. And just because you and I in our modernity can't figure out, well, how does that work? I can't figure it out. And my mind is the, the, the ultimate thing that measures all things. Uh, and because I can't figure it out, it must not exist. It's ludicrous, of course. If you want a God you can pull out of your pocket and say, you want to see my pet God, then go ahead and do that. But if God is bigger than your mind and, and you can't, pull together deity and humanity, and how did that happen? I don't know, but the Bible says it did. So three areas, the incarnation, what you celebrate at Christmas is not just this spiritual love story. It's physical, God becoming one of us. What you and I celebrate at the cross is not a love story of just God, somehow I just love you, my bride, and I'm going to die for you. It is that, but it is also God physically becoming the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. And here's the big one. When Jesus got up, it wasn't, as one teacher told me once, just spiritual and I hear people say it all the time. Well, I think Jesus got up and, and he spiritually lives in all the lives of all the people now. He physically got up by the power of God, and that's what we believe. So those two things come together where who Jesus is, the nature of Jesus is paramount, and what he did is paramount. And that's what we have believed from the beginning. Now, in four minutes, I'm going to give you what last night didn't get. And I apologize to Saturday night. Somehow we ran out of time. So what do we do? My advice to you is stay on course. Just stay on course. Make the main thing the main thing. That's the main thing, right? So he says, as for you... See that what you have heard from the beginning, what I just spoke about, remains in you. If it does, you also will remain 
in the Son and the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. Remain becomes the key term here. In the next two, three verses, he uses remain five times. And guess what? The remain is the same word we fell in love with when John wrote the gospel. John 15, abide in me and I in you. The Greek word is menain. It, it means to abide. It means to make your home in. So he says, don't move around. Don't treat spirituality like a singles bar. What, where's cool tonight? Where are we going tonight? Remain in the truth of Jesus. And the you here is emphatic. You have to make that decision. But if the truth remains in you, then we remain in him. So are you remaining in Jesus? Yes, you are. If you are remaining in this truth, if you're not deviating in the nature of Jesus and what he did for you and I, then you absolutely, objectively, not just subjectively, objectively, according to the word of God, you are remaining in Jesus by sticking to the truth. And you receive the ultimate promise which is eternal life. Verse 26, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, Remain in him. By the way, some people have said, I don't need to, to be taught anymore according to Scripture. Uh, that's the wrong conclusion because if you were to decide that, then John shouldn't even write this letter because he's teaching through this letter. He's not discounting teaching. He's discounting these teachers, these false teachers who are coming up with the new, the fandangled, the wow, though have you ever thought of? And wow, so persuasive, so charismatic. So warm and personal uh, must be God. And he says, no, you need to remain in this truth. In verse 28, and now, dear children, continue. And there the word is again, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. You are born from above, born again, not only because you believed, but because you continue to believe in what you have believed. The sensational. And, you know, I'm all about relating to culture. We're trying to relate to this culture because they're this, this. Let's, let's have the worship be different than it was in the 16th century. Let's be relatable. Let's not wear suits and ties. Let's be relatable. Let's have a big screen that's beautiful. Let's be relatable. But we cannot ever change the gospel. That remains the same. The other night, the party that I went to, that I said I'll come back to, 
Uh, so it was my friend's 60th birthday party. And by the way, there is life after 60. <laughs> so I'm told. <laughs> so, but because this friend is known as kind of the Bill Murray of Christianity, he, uh, uh, the, the party, it was a surprise for him, but the party his wife arranged had all the things that a kid would love. And so it had waffles with chocolate and peanut butter. It had uh, red vines. It had saltwater taffy. Uh, it had hot chocolate. All the things, and it was all only breakfast food. And all the cereals that were there were high in sugar. <laughs> and I ate it all. I was the kid enjoying the kid and enjoying it all. Oh, but the next morning, <laughs> I needed some real food. And the real food is the gospel of Christ. Folks, there is no trickery in Jesus. There, there is no smoke and mirrors. It is the real deal. You know, our sports are filled with trickery. Football, every play is... Let's do this one. They'll never figure out this one. Every pitch is, let's follow it up with the changeup. Let's follow it up with a curve, a slider. Uh, volleyball, let's, let's set it up this way and this way. And the, we'll, you'll come in with the kill. They'll never expect that. You know, every sport seems to have trickery. And we love, as Americans, not only sport and talent, but trickery. But there's nothing trick about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a fastball right over the plate. And if you don't hit it, it's just because you didn't swing fast enough. There's not gonna be any change up. There's not gonna be any curve. It is what you and I believe. It's true. And you don't need to move beyond it. The majesty of the incarnation. God became man. The majesty of the crucifixion, God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, as God-man died for you, for God so loved you that he gave his only begotten Son. And the majesty of the resurrection, he got up physically. Folks, no trickery. It's just true. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for truth. In a world of trickery, where people would say over and over, well, what the Bible really means is, well, God didn't really mean that. God, I thank you that you meant what you said. And God, here this morning, we, read, we re-decide what we've already decided and tell you we believe. Thank you for what we have believed from the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Such good news. This morning while we're praying, while our heads are bowed, you may be convinced today that you need to make a decision. Just as there's no trickery with God, there's no trickery with you, that you and I need to make a decision. Are we following 
this big God who has pursued us, this God who loves me so much that he did all this for me. In the privacy of this moment, I'm asking you to raise your hand where you are and say, yeah, I believe, I'm in. This is for my soul. Yes, God bless you. God bless you back here. This is what I need to do this morning, physically, just as God did it physically for me, to firm up my faith in Jesus Christ. Any others? Yes, God bless you back here, and you down here as well. You way, way in the back. Thank you. You can put your hands down. If you raised your hands, I want you to pray this prayer quietly as I pray it out loud. Lord, give me the anointing. Come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Today, I believe, and I reaffirm my belief in the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Forgive me of my sin and fill me with your spirit and make me a remaining follower of yours that has sticking power. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.